Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this time together as the family of God with you, Jesus Christ, as head over this flock here in Colorado Springs, this Hope Chapel. We pray that you might open our eyes and our ears this morning, that we might hear from you the things which you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whoa. Okay. Next slide. <laughs> Whoa. I, I, that's a sundial. I think it uh, was made in 1812. Boy, those were the days. <laughs> I remember them well. <laughs> well, we've been examining um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's uh, rich in wisdom and in cautions. And it's encouragements about the body of Christ. Last time I preached on uh, this book was uh, 2007. So, yeah, oldies but goodies. Anyway, we're not isolated believers. Uh, that's the point. This entire body, uh, this entire book of Ephesians is about the church of Jesus Christ, about who we are together as the family of God. So we're an integrated and coordinated whole. <laughs> Dream on, Bill. No, no, we are, we are an integrated and coordinated whole, a family of God. And yet each of us is specially gifted by God. Each of us is specially gifted by God to build and to serve his kingdom in conjunction with every other member of his kingdom. I didn't know that. That's what it says. We work together in our own families, don't we? Well, in an orderly way. <laughs> Definitely. And we work together in our church family the way things are supposed to be, the way they should function. We work together in our church family in an orderly way. That order is prescribed by God in a general way, and then each of us is responsible to implement that in a practical and in a loving way, a way that glorifies God. And that's going to take some thinking. Now, today we're looking at the second half of chapter 5. It's a caution and an encouragement to think of our own life as a reflection of the life of Christ as it plays out in his church. Paul presents marriage as a metaphor for kingdom living, and he commands us to order our lives accordingly. That's not easy to do. He says it's not haphazard, but it's intentional. We make time for the things of God. We are called to make time for the things of God. We choose to live to God in every moment and in every relationship that we have. That's a choice we make. That's our Christian walk. Let all things be done decently and in order. That's what he said to the Corinthian church. Let all things be done decently and in order. We ended last time with Ephesians 5.15. And guess what? That's where we're going to begin this week. It begins, see then, or look carefully then. The NAS says, therefore. So what does that mean? That means having laid out a number of premises, Paul will now draw a couple of conclusions about living to God in an orderly way, in our families and in the family of God. Paul is building on the points he just finished making about how we walk as Christians. We've heard about that already this morning. We've been reminded of that. We're told to be imitators of God as his dear children. That's a tall order. Imitators of God as his dear children. We must walk in love, and we must walk as children of light, diligently and as Wolf put it last week, proactively finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. We must not walk like those who are asleep, those who are dead in trespasses and sin. We must awake 
As Wolf pointed out, it's not enough to be moral or nice people. We must be visibly different in how we see the world. That's where we begin to see the distinction between who we are and who they are. We must walk as the children of light, seeing the world differently, interpreting our circumstances differently, and dealing with adversity differently than the world does. We must be people of grace and of mercy and of hope. The opposite of that, don't be hand wringers. Don't go down that road. It's not always trying to think, say, and do the right things. This came up as a discussion at our care group last week. Well, gee whiz, then if I'm trying to do things intentionally for Christ, I've got to talk about that, and I've got to think about that, and everything I do is that... No. No. It's not always about trying to think and say and do the right things, Christian things. That would be, for me, and probably for you, exhausting. As if we were still under the law. Don't do that. The Christian walk is all about being absolutely confident in who we are in Christ and convinced of what God has done and what God is continuing to do in us. That's where our confidence is, not in what we're doing. Those are the results of, they, see, they flow out from this other thing, which is our mental attitude. That will naturally express itself in how we think, speak, and act because we have a new nature. We have a new nature. When we came to Christ, the old nature died. And we now have a new nature, and we are called to live accordingly. In Romans 8, 6, Paul put it this way, to be carnally minded is death. In other words, to be following after the flesh all the time. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life, and it's peace. That's who we are in Christ. We are, we are, not we're trying to be, we are fountains of life and of peace, making Christ visible to all. Again, that's a tall order, but that's what we're called to. Now let's read today's passage. If you haven't already, please turn to Ephesians 5, 13 through 33. 15 through 33. <sighs> Jen is rubbing off on me. I'm not reading what's written. <laughs> I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. <clears throat> Why? Whim. <laughs> So, verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And Paul then defines what he means by circumspectly and walking wisely. He says, therefore, as a result of that, if that's what we're called to, therefore, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. Don't you love those old... King James sort of thing, dissipation. Uh, today we'd say that's reckless abandon. That's what we mean by that. Don't, don't go into reckless abandon, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always. Well, for what? For all things. To who? To God the Father. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's us in the church, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Paul gives us a practical application of submission in a marriage. What is that submission supposed to look like? Let me give you an example. Let's look at a marriage, how a marriage is supposed to work. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. 
And therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, the other half of the coin. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives. Thus, and in this way, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. Paul has given us in this description a metaphor for the church, a metaphor for the church, for how headship works in the church just as it does in the home, so that it may reflect the orderliness of God's kingdom. Verse 30, for, therefore, because, or in the same way, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul repeats that this is a metaphor, but... It's also a truth. Verse 32. This is a great mystery. That means I can't know it. No, 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 it's not what it means. When it says this is a great mystery, it means it has a hidden sense. It's said in a figurative way. It's said as a symbolic description of how this relationship is supposed to work. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Can we use this to teach about marriage? And, and husbands and wives? Sure. But what's it for? It's a metaphor for us here as the body of Christ. This marital relationship is a reflection or an expression of our relationship with Christ. Our relationship, this church, our relationship with Christ as the bride of Christ. That's who we are. This relationship of the church is corporate. We each have an individual relationship with Christ as a believer, don't we? But we also act together as a body of believers. And that relationship with Christ should look like a marriage. That's what it's supposed to look like, a covenantal orderly relationship in which all the beneficiaries of that covenant act as one. Okay, let's unpack that. Paul begins this part of his letter with the wise use of our time. See then that you walk circumspectly or diligently not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming or buying up the time because the days are evil. That is, the days are filled with hardships. That's what the word evil means. Isn't it of Satan? Yes, it can mean that, but mostly it means it's tough. It's rigorous. They are not easy times. That's what it means. So, therefore, spend your time wisely. Some translations say make the best use of your time. But that isn't quite the intent, I think, here. The word is used only four times in the New Testament. Two of them speak of us being redeemed from the curse of the law. The other two speak of us redeeming the time. Same word. Christ purchased us, and we purchase time. And those are related I'll repeat that. Christ purchased us and we purchased time. 
for his use, for his purposes. Here's the other verse about redeeming the time. It's from Colossians. Colossians 4, verses 5 through 6. I'll put it up on the board for you there. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time. And what should that look like? To which Paul says, I'm glad you asked. And he says, well, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Well, that's different. So redeeming the time means time spent in thinking about and preparing ourselves for those occasions, and we don't know when they're going to be, but for those occasions when we speak with outsiders, those who are not Christians, those who are outside the church. What should we talk to them about? How should we answer the questions that they ask and deal with their opposition to us? What should the tone of our speech be when we talk to those people? You have to think about that ahead of time. You're going to have to take time to think about how to do that. Oh. It should be gracious speech. Savory, as if you put salt and pepper on it. Engaging. Winsome. And inviting. Inviting, not confrontational, inviting. Giving no cause for any accusations against the body of Christ, which each of us represents. Make time to prepare yourself for those conversations. That's a wise use of your time. Now, it's, it's not that you use whatever time you have available or whatever time is left over from all your other activities. Rather, you make time. You buy time with the time that you could have used for other things. Oh. And you devote that time to the kingdom. You do that because of Christ. There's a motive behind it. You do it for Christ. And you do that because the days are evil. They are unkind. They are tough. Even dangerous to kingdom living. That's what they're finding in Ukraine. That's what they find in Saudi Arabia. It's what they find in China. That's what they find in North Korea. They are dangerous times. The time you have must be used to combat that evil and to overcome those dangers. Again, time is a precious commodity. And it must not be wasted. Verse 17, therefore don't be foolish. The word means stupid. <laughs> oh, scripture's fun. It also means rash. No, no not... It means acting without forethought, rash. Don't be stupid or rash with your time and your labor, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord is that we love God and neighbor with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's from Mark 12, 30. The will of the Lord is that we make disciples from all nations. That's Matthew 28, 19. That having a high priest over the house of God, we draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's Hebrews 10, 22. What's the will of God? That we love one another as he loved us, so that we all, so that all will know that we are his disciples. That's John 13, 34, and 35. Those are on the bottom of your handout. The challenge with managing time in a biblical way is accepting the fact that all our time is actually God's time. Oh, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> when's, when's me time? When, when's my time available? Well, no, please try to accept the fact that all our time is actually God's time. It's granted to us by God. It's a limited commodity, a scarce resource. And so it's very, very precious. Everybody has the same 24 hours in a day. 
But how we use that time will vary. How we use that time, each of us has a life to live, and that time varies for each one of us. We're not regimented in that everybody spends the same amount of time doing the same thing all the time. That's not what it's saying. It varies for each of us according to where we're at in our life, according to what we're going through. Moses' prayer in Psalm 90 speaks of this. The years of our life are 70, or if we have strength, 80, and yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger, speaking of God, and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days. Why? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. So wisdom is involved not only in figuring out how to use your time, but figuring out how to use your time is, in fact, wisdom. Oh. So how are you using your time? Is it devoted to fulfilling the Lord's will? As I said, it takes thoughtfulness. It takes planning to figure out how you can make time for all that. (laughs) And it's a daily choice. It's a daily choice and a lifetime commitment. It is costly. If you buy time from other things to spend it on the things of God, it's going to cost you. Are you willing to pay that price? You'll have to weigh the one against the other and then sacrifice or limit the one in order to obtain the other. It takes love and gratitude to God to be willing to do that. It takes love and gratitude to God to be willing to do that, to be willing to make that choice, to be able to buy that time. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. The time you spend of itself is not the measure of your love of Christ nor of your gratitude of God. It's not the amount of time spent. It's the purpose for which you spend it. You can spend the same amount of time doing the very same things and the one will glorify God while the other will not. Oh. If we, quote, do all things as to the Lord from Colossians 3.23 then all our time can be fruitful for Christ and the kingdom. Paul told the Corinthians that everything he did was, quote, for the sake of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, 23. Now, when we use the same time for kingdom purposes, we redeem the time. We use the same time. Again, we all have those 24 hours. How you spend it is what makes the difference. We use that very same time for God's purposes, For kingdom purposes, we are redeeming that time. We're buying it back. That's how we keep God at the center of all we do, not separate from them, from the sermon two weeks ago. Redeeming the time is a governing principle of our Christian walk. Redeeming the time is a governing principle of our Christian walk. Verse 18, and do not be drunk. Don't be filled up with wine in which is dissipation or acting with abandon, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't squander your time by spending it on momentary oblivion, time that is unproductive and sifts through your fingers like sand. Don't do that. Now, again, don't miss here. Sleep is good. Vacations, good. Recreation, good. Exercise, good. And travel, and travel, these are not wasted time if done in moderation. But what, to, what do you have to show for it? The time that you spend in, in any of these things, in all of these things, what do you have to show for it? What's the fruit of it? 
That is the test. What do I have to show for the time that I spend? I spend time cooking. I got food to show for it. Yes. <laughs> Looking in the short term, you're feeding your family. This is, this is time well spent. Okay, you're nurturing them. You're caring for That's time well spent. It's not wasted time. And it's not indifferent time. Then comes the other part of this verse, perhaps a, a confusing part. Uh, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How do I do that? It's an imperative. Remember your English class? <laughs> it has an exclamation point on the end of it. It's an imperative, a command, and yet it's passive. It's not fill yourselves, but be filled. Oh, It's something that's done to us. We open ourselves up to it. We put ourselves in a position to receive it. We let the Spirit fill us up by continuing to imbibe the Word of God in the same way that we let wine intoxicate us by continuing to drink. Yeah, that's another one of those metaphors. Interesting contrast that he gives us, but it's an interesting metaphor. As if to describe what he means, Paul goes on to say this, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Yeah, yeah, but what's that got to do with reading God's word? What are you going to sing about? <laughs> Duh. You know, what is it that you are going to impart? What is it you're going to talk about? What are these things that you're going to give to someone else and impart to them that's going to build them up and, and share with them the things that you've learned? What, what, where do you get that? You get that from God's word. That means like I'd, I'd have to prepare for that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's going to take time. Yeah. I'd have to actually plan for that. Yeah. These are the fruits of the Spirit operating in us. That's what he's describing here. These are the fruits of the Spirit actually operating in us. The Spirit operating in us. Time spent in singing, hearing, reading, and meditating shows the fruit, shows its fruit, displays its fruit, and ministering to others with the things of God that you've discovered. With the things of God that you've discovered for yourself in going through God's word. In meditating on it and thinking about it and saying, how does that apply to my life? The joys that you've experienced. The understanding that you've gained. The word of God contains spirit-filled words. It is a living thing. Jesus said his words are, quote, spirit and they are life. From John 663. David said they are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Well, God's word, Bible, right? We're talking about the same thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depends on how you look at it. It depends on what value you put onto it as to how you are going to respond to it and whether it has this value in your own life, in your own heart, in your own mind. God's words aren't just interesting or informational. They're not just rules and regs and history and genealogies about old dead people. They are life itself by the Spirit. The time we spend in God's word is productive time. I thought that was important enough. I put that on your handout. It says that. It says 
The time we spend in God's word is, and I added a word on your handout, always productive time. You're not going to waste your time in God's word. It's when we, and when, I can say this, it's when and where we feast on Christ. That is where and when we feast on Christ. And we're fed and refreshed by Christ. And we're filled with his spirit. Is there in God's word. But we must choose to spend time there. We must choose to spend time there. And why? So that we may receive from God the things of God. Why? For the purposes of God. Oh, it's when and where we receive our marching orders and get equipped for the battle ahead. It's when and where we are strengthened for our labors and nourished for the journey. To be called by God to serve God in the name of Jesus Christ is a high honor. We don't always look at it that way, but that's a high honor. We must respond to it appropriately, and so Paul continues giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, too, is one of the fruits we harvest from making time with God through his word. We see all the things we have in Christ there. That's where we see those. All the things we have in Christ are there in the word of God, by the grace of God. And so we thank God in Christ's name, not pointing to his authority, but to his provision for us. The name of Jesus Christ is also a means of provision. To call upon the name of Christ is to say, I need provision. I can't get it by myself. Oh, in the name of Christ, I ask you, my heavenly Father, give me what I need. Provide for me the things that will help me to grow and to walk as Christ in this world. We thank God in Christ's name because apart from Christ, we would have none of this. We have it in his name. We have it because we wear his name. We have it because we live in his name. Under his authority and by his strength. But it actually takes you a minute to think about that as you're living each day. The life I am now living, I am living by Jesus Christ. In Christ. We give thanks always for all things to the giver of life, Lord of hosts and creator of the universe. He sent his only son into the world to save us from our sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Standing on scripture alone is our authority. Oh. It contains everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own authority and excellence. 2 Peter 1.3 now Paul offers an illustration or a metaphor to help us consider these things. He's clear that he's speaking of the church and not just about, not just about marriage. But it's also clear that the way our own household works is based on the way the household of God works. They are related. That's why we're looking for qualifications for elders. How well does he manage his own home? Same reason, because those two things are tied together. It is to be orderly. It is to be loving. And this applies as much to singles as it does to those who are married. Who then is the head of the household for a single? Yes, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, as you would to Christ himself. Why? Because of the principle of headship, of orderliness. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, 
and he is savior of the body. And therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their husbands in everything. That word for subject is not servitude. <laughs> right? The word for subject, subject to your husband, is not servitude. It's not about being bound to someone like a serf to a master. Not what it means. The Greek word is, oh, you'll love this, hypotasso. Hypo, hypo means under. Tasso means lined up. Lined up under. Subject to, lined up under. It's used over a hundred times in the New Testament. Must be an important concept. We place ourselves under subjection to another. It describes an arrangement of things. They are set in order or in sequence. It has nothing to do with the value or even the importance of the things. It's a military term. It's a military term, which means to line up under someone by rank and file, carrying out our instructions in order to obtain our objective. It means rallying to the banner of God. I used to be a waiter back in my young days. We arranged the silverware alongside each plate with the spoon or fork that would be needed first on the outside. The next one you're going to use is inside of that. The next one is inside of that. Each one serves its role in turn, in sequence, each arranged according to its purpose and time. The same word is used in Hebrews 2.8. You have put, speaking of God, you have put all things in subjection under his feet, speaking of Christ, for in doing that, he put all things in subjection under him, all things in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. You'll never guess who that includes. Us, yeah. So a wife puts herself under subjection to her husband. He doesn't put her there. She puts herself under subjection to her husband. It's an act of will. It's a choice. But she does it because God commands it, not because her husband demands it. The wife is obedient to God and placing herself under subjection to her husband. She's not under her husband's thumb. She's under the hand of God, submitting in the fear of God. And in the same way, every believer humbles himself under the mighty hand of God so that God may exalt him in due time, 1 Peter 5, 6. Same concept, same understanding of that. We put ourselves under God's hand. Part of that orderliness, part of that headship. God honors those with a humble and contrite heart. He will not despise or reject them, Psalm 51, 17. He draws near to them and rescues them. Psalm 34, 18. He revives them. Isaiah 57, 15. There's a theme in Scripture of headship. From Genesis to Revelation, there is a theme of headship. Notice that Paul doesn't hesitate here in Ephesians to point out the correlation between the head of a household and the head of the church. Paul illustrates that God is a God of order, a purposeful God who does all things in sequence according to his will and in his timing. And therefore, if we would be like God in our character, and we are called to be imitators of God, if we would fulfill the role of Christ's bride, then we should reflect that same orderliness, that same arrangement. So, is the husband the tyrant of the home? <laughs> no. Well, is he the ruler of their home who can unilaterally bark orders and expect all the servants, his wife and children, to cower and obey in fear without question? 
course not. No. But in case any of his readers misunderstood what he was saying, Paul goes on to explain the husband's role. Again, he shows the correlation between the love of a husband for his wife and the love of Christ for the church. It's a sacrificial love. The husband is to lay down his life for his wife. He's going to redeem the time in order to serve her. The husband is going to redeem the time in order to serve her. How? In the name of Christ. Listen. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. For what purpose? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ did all that on the cross. He sanctified and cleansed our sin by his blood. And Christ is doing that daily by the word and by his spirit who dwells in every believer, who dwells in each of you. To what end? That we might be holy and without blemish. That we individually, not just the church corporately, but we individually might be holy and without blemish in the sight of God, as declared by God. We have all of Christ's righteousness and all of his perfection imputed to us in the name of Jesus Christ by the Father. You are wholly righteous and completely perfect in the sight of God because of Christ. Now, live your life accordingly. That's all that Paul is saying. The husband's duty to his wife is to protect and nourish her by the word of God. He is therefore the spiritual leader of the home for that specific purpose. Oh, but my wife does all that. Yeah, I know. But it's not supposed to be that way. Oh. But is that always true? Is it always possible? No. No, it's not. There are times when the wife cares for her husband as Christ cares for the church. Nursing him to health when his body or mind fail him. Feeding him when he can't feed himself. Providing for him when he cannot provide for his family. That too is by God's design because they are one flesh. United under Christ as head. But what if the wife has come to Christ and the husband hasn't? Or vice versa. What if her understanding of these things conflicts with her husband's? A house divided against itself cannot stand, and yet they are one flesh, united in Christ. This is when their days have become evil. Again, not satanic, evil. Hard, tough, rugged, difficult, and perhaps filled with hardships. Submission is not optional because even that circumstance is from God. Yeah, but I don't like it. I, I know. But even that circumstance is from God. But how that submission is displayed may be far different than a marriage between two believers who are united by following Christ. I'm sorry, but that's just the way things are. Can God redeem it? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Every marriage, if you didn't know, next year Lynn and I have our 50th coming up. Every marriage is a struggle. <laughs> Sometimes it's a knockdown battle, but, you know, it's a struggle. Our spouse is God's gift to us to sanctify us, to cause us to set aside our selfish desires, to stop pleasing only ourselves in order to please our spouse. 
so that both of us might have joy together. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Marriage is not a zero-sum game where neither, where neither spouse wins. It's designed to be a win-win situation. God intends it to be a win-win situation in which shared joy and mutual submission yield more joy than either spouse may find or experience on their own. That's how God designed it. Don't get in the way. <laughs> Don't get in the way. <clears throat> the whole is greater than the part. Serving his wife is in his own best interest. Paul now equates the relationship between a husband and wife to that same sort of relationship between Christ and the church. He's going to go back to it yet again. We have become one with Christ, one body, one spirit, one mind. To love the one is to love the other. For husband and wife, for fellow believers, it's the same benefit. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And to certify that, he goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the very creation of mankind. And he quotes from Genesis 2.24, For this reason, the reason he just gave, that it's one flesh, for this reason a man shall, cleave and shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so we don't forget what this is really about. Paul brings us full circle. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. How do we behave among each other here as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ? He's saying, don't think this sort of subjection and sacrificial love doesn't apply to your marriage because it does. The principles are the same. We are subjected to Christ in all things by God, for God's purposes, to glorify the Son and to fulfill God's will in the world. That's the reason for it. That's why we do it. That's why submission is crucial. Subjection of ourselves, putting ourselves in subjection to another is crucial. Verse 33, nevertheless, even so, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Sometimes that's a challenge, ask Lynn. Although... Although the principles we've just reviewed can apply equally in marriage and in the church, we're going to focus on the church as the body and bride of Christ. Church membership is akin to a marriage. We sometimes say this during our distinctives class. Why this church? Why not some other church? Well, we're dating for a while here, okay? Figure out whether this is a spouse we really want to be joined to, you know? Uh, so it is a lot like marriage and how we serve one another and submit to one another and how we care for and love one another. Remember those one another's I handed out a few weeks ago? Ooh, now's a good time. Review the one another's. You'll see that this bond that we have in Christ applies equally to singles and to widows, to those who have children and those who don't, to every circumstance of life. And every circumstance of life affects how we order our time. By God's design, there are some of us who are well off financially and those who struggle just to put food on the table. There are those who have physical limitations and those who don't. Some have experienced devastating loss or tragedy. Others have not. Each of these impacts how we spend our time. Take that into account as you deal with one another in the household of God. We all have the same amount of time, but we don't all have the same liberty or flexibility in how we spend it. What we all have is Christ. <laughs> That's what we all have. We all have Christ as our head and our husband.
<clears throat> All believers in every relationship should submit to Christ just as a wife should submit to her own husband in a marriage. Every believer in every relationship should submit to Christ just as a wife would submit to her husband in a marriage. This brings order to the home and also order to the church, but we never submit in opposition to Christ. We never submit in opposition to Christ, so there are limits to our submission. When we don't respect those limits, the orderliness of the church suffers. The orderliness of the household suffers. The orderliness of our life suffers. Our relationships are damaged when the time we spend is devoted to things that either work in opposition to or compete with the kingdom of God. That's just a fact. On the other hand, when our lives and our time are ordered by putting Christ at the head of all things, everything will fall into its proper place. So, what's the application of this? All very interesting, but, you know, how am I supposed to live when I walk out the door today? I'm glad. I'm glad. So, what can we do to properly order our time and our relationships? Are there practical steps we can take to live life fully and to make the best use of the time that God has allotted to us? And, of course, the answer is yes. Yes, we can. So, Josh gave us a strategy a few weeks ago. I'm going to put a little excerpt up on the board for you. He called it the word and the prayer strategy. <laughs> nice title. I like it. He said, Paul delivers divine doctrine. And then in divine dependence, he waits upon divine intervention through prayer. Paul believed that apart from divine intervention, the Ephesians would not respond with the interest, passion, and engagement of faith. That is a profound statement. It's true for every one of us. That's the strategy. Let your heart be changed by God through his word and your prayers. That's the strategy. We need tactics. We need tactics. Satan has his. We need to have ours. Remember Satan's tactics a couple of weeks ago? That drifting that we get into because he just wants you to move one foot. Just, if I could just get you. We need to be able to thwart his aims by having our own tactics. In Ephesians, Paul encourages us to read and to hear and to pray about and to impart to others the word of God. So we're of one mind and one spirit in the cause and service of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitted to him in all things. That's the tactic. Okay. So how do we go about implementing that? <laughs> oh, We could go pretty far afield to answer that question. So let's just stick with what Paul lays out for us here in chapter 5. This has been a two-point sermon, and those two points are on your handout. He has other ways to implement the tactic throughout his letters, but here he specifies just two things. One, redeem the time by putting all your time at the disposal of God. It's not what you do, but why you do it and for whom. Number two, Order the time. How? By putting Christ as head over all in your personal life and in the church. Seek first the kingdom of God. Matthew 6.33. That was our meditation verse last week for communion, wasn't it? I don't remember that far back. I, I'm, that's why I'm reminding you. Yes, that, that, that was our meditation verse last week. I know you're expecting a how-to at this point, but I'm not going to give it to you. It varies for each of us. 
Are you willing to renew your mind so you'll find and prove that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? If so, then you'll make time to hear and to read God's word and to pray over it and to meditate on it, asking God to conform you to Christ. You'll find yourself reading it with that purpose in mind. But until that's your desire, until that's your joy, no methods, no tactics are going to help you redeem the time or put Christ over all. So what do we need to do? We need to pray for that joyful heart as Christ prayed for us. If the worship team would come up. So I'm going to close with Christ's prayer for us in John 17. But now, Father, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy filled in themselves. I, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Amen.